Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back to the Inclusive Education Project. We have really exciting guests on. I know it seems like we say that all the time, but (laughs) this one, I think a lot of the people that are listening from all different aspects of school life will find interesting. But before we get into that, when this drops, Amanda and I will have been at a presentation this last weekend in Irvine, and it was Poppy Life Summer Camp, which was a great event that had so many different people that were going to be part of it. I know that there was going to be a presentation regarding music therapy. Like um, a nutritionist. A nutritionist. Looking yeah. at like holistic care to yes. for the child. Like exactly. how can we kind of look at it holistically, everything that we do for the children. Kind of stuff outside of school, but... Yeah, and it it was a a free event, and I know that Poppy Life will be doing more events, especially after the success of this one. So we will kind of keep you guys updated of that if you're in Southern California, obviously in Orange County area. But yeah, we had fun, so it was a good time. Yeah, it's a good end of the school year kind of get together with some, there were some other colleagues that we work with a lot. So that was great. Now everyone listening is probably in the middle of the craziness, or if you're one of those lucky school districts and you're done already, which I know a couple of you are, (laughs) have fun. I know we always get at IEP meetings the whole, what are you doing this summer? And I have to unfortunately say I'm working. (laughs) And with that said, we'll introduce David. David, tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners. Sure. My name is David Friedman. I live in Reno, Nevada. I guess most importantly, a father of twin boys who are going into fifth grade next year. One of them is with Down syndrome. And then... I am also executive director of student services, specifically over special education in the Washoe County School District, which is, we have about 65,000 students, over 100 schools. Uh, There's another counterpart of me, so there's two executive directors over special education, but we work in unison of supporting schools, families, and obviously students special education. So, Did you always know that this would be something that you would get to or were you one of those people that was like, I just want to be a teacher, man. And then you just kind of found yourself in this position. Yeah. I mean, my journey has been interesting. I grew up in New York and born and bred mm-hmm. in New York and I have been a swimmer my whole life. So oh, nice. Growing up, um, I was a lifeguard, and as 16-year-old lifeguards do, you know, you're offered money to give swim lessons. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the, you know, first things, I worked at day camps and apartment complex and condos, and I would have families ask me, you know, do you give swim lessons? And I said, sure, you know, <laughs> and, and the pay was really good. And then I had a family who had a child with autism, and this is like mid-90s. Wow, so, yeah. You know, it's... It was just coming onto the radar, definitely not as prevalent as we're seeing as it is right now. And they said, well, have you ever given any kids with disabilities swim lessons? And like any 16-year-old boy, I'm like, sure. (laughs) 
do it all Absolutely, the time, Absolutely, right? yes. <laughs> so that was like my first foray like into working with kids with disabilities. I kind of approached it, you know, teaching a, a student with autism how to swim is like teaching any typical, you know, child who's terrified of water, yeah. you know, how to swim. Like mm-hmm. you kind of task analyze everything and yeah. break it down that way. And then growing up from probably 16 until 25, I worked... I worked in group homes, went, you know, okay. after deinstitutionalization, um, really teaching independent living skills. I provided respite care for families. Um, I did recreational services for students with disabilities. And I worked for the ARC in New York uh, for adults with disabilities. So it seemed like that was a big part of my life. But interesting enough, like, I always want, you know, I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't go into special education. I was an elementary school teacher. I also got my degree in secondary, and oh, I can't okay. really remember why I didn't do special ed because oh. it was a big part of my life. Yeah. But I just I don't know if it was going to take a lot longer, but I yeah. didn't I didn't do that. And then so going through I you know working through the district as a teacher and I was a computer strategist for a bit. I worked in curriculum and literacy. So kind of working through, but it wasn't until I became principal when there were a lot of inequities that I saw, and not that I necessarily had a huge background in special education, but inclusion has always been, you know, really important to me. And there, there was a lot of defining moments that just had me asking, like, why are we doing this, mm-hmm. you know? And what you hear is like, you know, we always do it this way, yep. and. Uh, I started like questioning some of those things, probably much to the dismay of teachers mm-hmm. and, you know, things like that. But like I said, there were pivotal moments where you kind of see like, what are we doing for kids? Why are we trying to get a bunch of kids into special education and starting looking at that? So that's great. You know, like as you listen to our podcast, you know, we always try to demonstrate that there are a lot of great teachers and administrators out there. When we talk about challenges that we face in our practice and with the clients that we have, you know, we're not always, we're not talking about all, all teachers, all administrators, whatnot. And it's the teachers that like that, that don't just go with the status quo that, you know, just roll in the motions that, you know, we appreciate. I think in any other job that you do, if you just keep going things the way things are going, you know, things might just stay stagnant and we never see progress if we don't start to question it. So we love teachers that, that do that because it is important to question why are we doing things, not just because we have. So do you think that when you were a principal, you saw more than you did as a teacher? And so then that's when your kind of wheels started because you were kind of seeing uh, the forest, right? Like when you're a teacher, yeah. you're seeing the tree and, and you're just kind of, right. you know, worried and, and wanting the kids in front of you to succeed. But I guess as a principal, that was a little different, right? It was. So like one of the defining moments. And so once again, I had this background of working with the people with disabilities. Right. But then in the school and people were like, you know, you don't have this background. You never taught special ed, which I say it's probably a good thing because in the 90s, what it was, it was, you know, they would pull your kids out and just give them worksheets. There was no instruction that I saw like when I was a teacher. As a principal, and people didn't like when I said this, so I'll say it, but you kind of have to listen to the context. But what I always say is there's nothing so special about special ed. And people think they do. Gen ed teachers think there is this amazing thing that's going on. Right. Good teaching is special education. 
right? I mean, right. a teacher who knows how to yeah. right. differentiate, meet needs of students. 100%, you know? yes. So good teaching trumps, I mean, everybody is looking for a silver bullet. Good teaching is your silver bullet. Yeah. I don't care if that comes from the special ed world, if it's gen ed, mm -hmm. but what I saw as a principal, I had really good teachers trained in literacy. I mean, they went through a reading academy and I, all of my principalship was in Las Vegas, Nevada, which um, is the fifth largest school district, huge district. I saw at the time all of these teachers, you know, working with kids, but they had kids below grade level, trying to push them through the SIT process, which is the school intervention team. Mm -hmm. Now compared to the MTSS team, but really that was the gatekeeper of like to start finding, you know, pushing them through eligibility. Mm -hmm. So I saw really good teachers like have lists, like we have just this long list of wanting to put kids through. Right. And the issue is that at that time I had an awful research teacher. I mean, and when I came on campus, she said, listen, I should really retire, but I really oh need the God. medical insurance and wow. it's going to take you two years to get rid of me. So, you know, why don't we just say like, I promise you in two years I'll be gone, you know, but you'll be off my back. Right. And <laughs> obviously I couldn't do that. Right. Right. But I mean, nothing effective was going on. So I have a group of really capable teachers saying that, you know, these kids have issues and concerns trying to get me into this process so they could be with this teacher and nothing effective was going on. And during that time, you know, No Child Left Behind just came. There was a lot of accountability. So what I started doing is having teachers do walkthroughs everywhere and especially through special education so they could see what was going on there as well. And what came from that is that, you know, my gen ed teacher said, you know, we really want to keep our kids, you know, we'll put them through interventions. If we're responsible for the data on these students, you know, we want them there. But I think gen ed teachers sometimes think they would be much better off in so-and-so's class right. because they're trained and they know. Right. Right. Them, right. You know, but if you really look at what they're doing, good special ed teachers understand students and their needs and start to differentiate and we kind of know education is trial and error yeah right? my things we take data we implement things if it's not working we should be changing those interventions up so right. that we're not waiting to the end of the year to see no progress right and you know oftentimes amanda and i feel like we're the accountability police I think that, you know, not that's typically what happens. The end of the year is the busiest for us, right? Because they were getting all these IEP meetings in and, you know, some of these parents, if and depending, obviously, if we've been on the matter for the entire year, this is not the first IEP that we're having, you right. know, but we feel that that's been lost, right? Where if it's not working, why are we not changing it, you know? And we get it. There's a hundred million other things that are going on, but that individuality is is lost, I think. And and like you said, those special education teachers, they have so many different disabilities within their classroom and learning differences, and they're still right. trying to maintain. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head when you you think about what the teachers perceive, and teachers perceive to be special education, I think is more of the problem than what it actually is. Because, I mean, that's a struggle I face a lot when I'm in trying to have a child either be mainstreamed for a portion of the time or a child is mainstreamed and we're trying to 
come up with better strategies, right? And I hear all the time, well, I don't know how to modify curriculum or I can't modify curriculum. But in reality, if we then go through like actual strategies, I had this one IEP where it was a health class and a student who is in high school. And the teacher was talking about how some of the concepts in the class were just too above this kid's head. And I said, well, health class is very important as a vocational independent living skill, as a safety skill for this child. It's not just the fact that we want him to be in this class, but also the knowledge that he needs to gain from it. And the pushback was, well, I don't know how to modify this differently than what I'm doing. And then I started trying to go through and he said, you know, I'm giving him, you know, the test differently. And I said, but that's not... That's not differentiating your instruction. I said, if a child, so I went through some strategies, like, you know, one of the skills was like a medicine bottle, learning the label of the medicine bottle. And so they were actually teaching like the components of medicine and all this stuff. And I said, reality, what do the kids really need to know about this medicine bottle? They need to know what's the dosage, that it's my medication or someone else's medication. If it's mine, I take it. If it's not, I don't, right? And so I explained how that, like, that's the portion that this kid can understand and can learn. That's what you need to teach them. You're already teaching that to the rest of the class. It's not like you're doing anything different. And once you start going down that rabbit hole of explaining these ideas, it's like, oh, yeah, I can do that. And I get that a lot where I get when you go into the nitty ditty like details, I'm sure a lot of these teachers are more susceptible and that's what we see. But they hear the word special education and they think, well, I can't or I don't know how. When they do know right. how, because there are sometimes they're already doing it with other kids. They just don't realize that they mean they're synonymous with each other. Right. And I guess what it is, is and this is what I ask principals and teachers all the time. If the parent revoked services, what would you do? Mm-hmm. You're like, why? What? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, you have a student with autism and the parent has. And that happened at my school that a parent before they got to my school revoked services. If they wrote revoked services, they're in your class. Right. What right. would you do? And then, you know, then they start, well, because they're at this level, I would start, you know, working on segmenting and blending. And I'm yeah. like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, where we start, yeah. like, we first look at what can you do within your realm. Yeah. And then we'll talk about the support to that yeah. we could bring in. The problem is no one really understands, like, no one has a definition of inclusion. If you ask anybody what inclusion is, Everybody has a different definition. It does irk me when I hear people talk about inclusion like an ingredient in a recipe. So I hear after an IEP meeting, parents say this all the time, how did the IEP meeting go? Oh, you know, it went really well. You know, we added a little bit more inclusion into the IEP. (laughs) Yeah. What is that? Because inclusion is not the amount of minutes you spend in the gen ed environment. So I think first schools need to, and districts, but really it comes down to the school, you have to define what inclusion is. And mainstreaming really takes the ownership off of the school of Mm -hmm. the term. Like inclusion is the philosophy that you take when a student walks through your classroom, disability or no disability, that we are going to provide access to everything that non-disabled peers have. We're going to figure it out. And that goes from academics but also like when we do plays how do i involve my nonverbal students exactly are they going to work behind the scenes are they going to work in front of the Mm -hmm. scenes are they going to do props are they going to work behind the camera but everything that we plan in our school like when i got to one of my schools we had separate field days like why do we have separate field days now special ed teachers can make things sound really convincing and good to parents 
like because field day is so so many people chaotic yeah and we don't want to see meltdowns right. well then why don't we design a field day that incorporates yeah. all of that right you know where we could do a little bit of both so maybe right. they don't go to every single station right but they're part of the school. Right. Well, because the so they need to learn it eventually, right? The real world is not separated and secluded. So we shouldn't be doing that in school. We're not preparing them for the real world. Right. And I believe kids should be pulled out at times. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, here's the thing. When I hear people like, yeah, we're a fully inclusive school. No, you're not. Like, gifted and talented we have times where we pull them out so they right. could get the instruction they need. Mm -hmm, yeah. At my school, we did a walk to learn model, so an intervention time where we pulled students that had similar deficits in reading or math and worked on those skills, but they're owned by the general education teacher, right? right? Like they're part of that. And I always tell, like for my own child, Noah, I always tell the teachers, I don't want him to be the class pet. I don't want yes. him just to be in there, oh, he's so cute and he's yeah. so funny yeah. and he's, he's the class mascot, but we're yeah. not doing anything meaningful for yeah. him. So, you know, one of our teachers, um, my, my son's teacher said, you know, she was honest, I never taught a child with Down syndrome before, I don't really know what to do, and, like, I appreciate that. I'm like, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And you yeah. could do whatever you would do with you know, students at that level. Right. So here's a great modification they did. They were doing westward expansion, right? Mm -hmm. And learning Nevada history. Well, like he got all of that information, but his project in front of the class was his westward expansion from Las Vegas to Reno. Right. And he did a presentation, you know, using a chart and he did that. Like, that's a good modification. Absolutely. He got, he understood and he sang the songs that they did you know, that all the kids did, but then he, they made it meaningful for him. Right. That's what I wanted him to get out of it. And that's the gen ed teacher with help from the resource teacher right. doing those things. Yeah, and I think that's the component that sometimes is missed as well, is that a lot of IEP teams do put a lot on the gen ed teacher. And so there are things that they can come up with if they just think about how they differentiate learning for everybody. But then sometimes they may need help. They may need to brainstorm just as anybody does, right? And sometimes you have to brainstorm things. And that's that component of having a resource teacher or a special education teacher that can help brainstorm and throw ideas around because you are going to be doing different. And sometimes you don't know until a task pops up how the child is going to react. Sometimes they'll do very well and exceed your expectations. And other times it'll be something that you thought they might have been able to do and they couldn't. You know, so I think that collaborative approach, and not just with the RSP teacher, but some of these tasks, parents do some of the stuff at home, right? And so if the collaboration was all three, I mean, I hear parents all the time who give great suggestions for things of like how to approach a problem, how to modify, because there's not no one right way to modify, right? It's thinking outside the box, it's being creative, just like lesson plans are anyway. I mean, just like you said, good teachers create different ways of learning. I mean, anyone who doesn't just use the standard, let me just lecture and comes up with hands-on strategies, that's the same thing. It's just not thinking about it as it's just this one kid, right? Because most of the time, like we say with like kids with dyslexia, the curriculum that works with them works for everybody. Right. I think students with dyslexia typically shouldn't be in special ed. Right. We should be doing meaningful interventions throughout where they don't have to go into special ed because there are unintended consequences about being yep. in special ed. Yep. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Okay, so then you're a mover and a shaker 
as principal of this school and then the district administrations that be have to poach you at this point because you're just like just a mover and a shaker or what happened next? Yeah. So, I mean, so we were doing that and I had some self-contained programs that we deconsolidated and pushed them in and worked through that. So, I mean, there were definitely things that we did. We weren't perfect, but we definitely had an ownership on inclusion. What happened was in my own district, they were, one of my old boss was the head of special ed and she's like, you should interview for this position. You know, I'm going to be leaving it. And I said, okay. And I put my application in. And at the same time in Northern Nevada, I was going through this program through the University of Nevada, Reno, which is called, it's like AUC. Do you know the AUCDs, the University Centers for Disabilities? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So I took a program called LEND, Leadership and Education in Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities. People in different aspects, so they had doctors, pediatrics. Mm, very cool. Yeah, so they had different things. OTs were in their speech. I think I was the only educator at the time, but people who work with you know, individuals with disabilities. And while I was doing that, I had to do some hours up in Reno and I knew some of the people and, you know, they said, you know, we also might have a position like that. You should look into interviewing for it. And my whole thought process was my son, I mean, I did it selfishly too, right? My son was going to be, he went to my school, which was a Title I school, like a three-star, you know, I mean, they rate schools, so yeah, it wasn't yeah. the highest rated. Yeah. We had some really good teachers. But I also knew once he left me, I didn't have any more control over what happened to the educational environment. Right. And the idea of doing something on a systems level intrigued me. So, you know, um, the one in my district really didn't act on that position for a very long time. And the one up in, in Washoe and Reno did, and I interviewed for it and was offered the job. And it was just sort of, I asked my, you know, I said to my wife, it's uh, eight hours away, so it's not a big, I mean, it's a pretty far distant. I'm just like, what do you think? And she's like, do it. And like, with I had to give my answer within a day or two. So wow. Oh my gosh. Kind of, your whole family? Yeah. It was a mid-year thing too. It was, it happened, my move happened in like right after Thanksgiving time, which was hard to leave my school, but the opportunity. And then the district called me, the one that I was working, like, hey, we were really impressed with your application. We would like to interview you. But, oh no. Yeah. I like the idea that the superintendent, the other thing is I'm kind of like a nerd to board meetings and I watch superintendents talk and in Clark County, they weren't really talking about special ed at the Mm -hmm. time up where I am. There were some egregious things that happened with advocates and, you know, lawyers and, you know, state complaints and due processes. So the superintendent was really in tune with that and said, this system is broken and we need to fix it. And I kind of like that idea, at least you have a superintendent admitting to that there's disparities. It's that top-down approach, right? When you have somebody at the top, and we see that all the time with different principals at different locations, you know, when they have that mentality, it kind of floats all the way down. And so having a superintendent that's just like, look, okay, this is the problem, I'm admitting to it, It may not have even been their problem, right? It just, that's the bag that they got. And then they were moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Right. And trying to resolve it. I think typically when you hear superintendents talk, they talk a lot about achievement gaps and they embed 
students with disabilities IEP in there, but that is not their singular focus. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was our superintendent's singular focus that it's so egregious right now of what's happening, we need to improve it. And a lot of my interview questions revolved around inclusion and inclusive practices and you know, things like that. And I believe in the continuum. So, but, you know, I think people think like, I just want all students to be in a general ed environment. That's not appropriate for everybody, but we should be exhausting what we could do in the least restrictive environment. So logistically, one problem that we often have when school teams aren't even considering the continuum, right? Especially when it's like a younger kid, kid just entering special education. Maybe they're in second grade, they're already in gen ed, or maybe they're preschool going in, right? There's a lot of times the conversation starts at special day class. How do you logistically get the school district as a whole, holistically to start talking about what can be done in gen ed first? Like, is that something that would need to be like trainings of IEP teams? Because we see this all the time. Like I have districts where I have like one school where they always talk about inclusion first. They always talk about gen ed, but then others that don't. How is that? I mean, it's a problem that we see and, you know, hopefully you have an answer. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's not an easy answer to that because you can't do, I mean, with a district with over a hundred schools, you definitely have disparities in what goes on and it depends on one leadership two capability you know we have people entering the profession that are alter- alternative route that don't have the background in special ed we have options that come from other areas in education so i think those are some of the barriers mm-hmm. but we've been working more and more with schools we go through some you know inclusion consultants as well okay. But, I mean, we keep on going back. What we say about change of placements in general is that change of placements are an IEP team decision, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to hold on to that rooted in data guided by student services. So we can't make those decisions, but there needs to be data and strong data. And our team needs to be involved because we could send in I have an amazing staff. We have, um, underneath me, I have instructional coordinators, one for each area. So I have, we have four areas, and then we have some departmental stuff too, life skills. And then they have implementation specialists that work with teachers. So implementation specialists work with teachers on things. The instructional coordinators work with principals. Executive directors work with principals and area superintendents and district leadership. So mm-hmm. we're more on the policy side. I think one of your questions or someone asked me before, like, you know, what happens when you go to IEP meetings? We don't go to IEP meetings. And I know people want us to go to IEP meetings, but there's some reasons why we don't do. And I'll tell you what we do instead. We don't go to IEP meetings because, one, we don't know students. Two, we can't ensure those services are going to happen. As a principal, I had a lot more power of, like, if we decided something on an IEP meeting, right. I could right. go in the next day, work with my teacher, and ensure that those things were happening by frequent walkthroughs through, mm-hmm. you know, through that program. That's the LEA's job or the administration's job to be able to do it. So when we have, you know, schools that feel like, hey, this is going to be contentious, we know they're going to be asking for one-on-one aids and all of these things, and they're going to be asking more restrictive placements than less, which is interesting to me that I fight parents to keep their kids in the less restrictive environment, mm-hmm. but, but I think that's cultural. 
But what we do is we have agenda setting meetings with the team. So our team goes out and sits down with them prior to that IEP meeting, not to predetermine anything, but really to outline what they think those concerns are, what data we have, what kind of problem solving, what kind of questions they're going to ask the family because they are the most important member on that IEP team. And if we work well with them, we're not going to have any due processes. So we really focus on LEA training. And we've done a lot of work. We first brought in a consultant from out, someone who was a lawyer, but then also a um, partner was a special ed director. And then what we did was we kind of took that training and really honed it in on our district. So mm. the other executive director and I run, you know, lead those LEA trainings and giving them tools and resources on how to run, you know, the process of an IEP meeting. You know, when it does get contentious, right. you know, how do you focus back on student needs? When certain things are asked, you know, that might be appropriate, but you know, what are the unintended consequences of one-on-one aids and things like that? So what we do, they have tools of an agenda, of roles and responsibilities, who's mm-hmm. doing what, making sure that we're very professional and everybody knows what their role is, who enters the information, consensus building worksheet of how to build consensus among teams, which is not a vote in the IEP meeting, but it's really what's best for the student. We have fade plans of one-on-one aids. We have IEP roadmap. I think I sent your producer an IEP reflective roadmap for families. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk a little bit about that, but the whole point is we need parent voice in these IEP meetings. Yes. And how do we do that? Yeah. When I was principal, never did I, nine years as a principal, no due process, no IEE. And it wasn't because we were so great, but I will tell you, we had really good relationships with families. Yeah. Yeah. We validated families, which they need to hear that they're not crazy. Yes. And we were able to walk parents through sort of our side and we always erred on the side of least restrictive. So parents knew when we did say, you know what, at this point we have this data and we've really been unsuccessful in this environment. As a team, we need to consider something else. What are your thoughts? And I'll tell you, nine times out of 10, they came to us to say that they were thinking about more restrictive at that point, which made it easier for our team because then we had the data to back it up. Or sometimes we said, we really need another four more weeks to collect data because we're going to implement this new plan. The fidelity of data is everything. And I think that's probably the number one thing that we hear from parents when we're just like, okay, well, what's happening? What, you know, how are the progress on the goals? I've never seen a progress report. I don't know what's happening. I keep asking, or even I get to the end of the year and he made progress on this goal, but there's no way that he made progress on this goal because I asked him to write his name and he can't do it. And I think that just starting from that point, just being very scientific and just having, you know, as attorneys, you know, we have evidence and, you know, we can't, you know, we just don't pull things out of air and I think that that's what happens. That's the first thing that's broken in the relationship between a parent and a district yeah. is that 
when the parent is asking straight up for like, I don't know how he passed this goal. And the district's like, no, yeah, he passed it. Or no, I observed that he has friends and parents like, well, who's the kid and this, and then they're not being transparent. I think that that at the end of the day, normally breaks, that's the last straw that breaks the camel's back because that's what parents want. And then the minute that we come in and we're like, okay, let's have this IEP meeting. You know, we're gonna, you know, we don't want to have IEP meetings every three months, but if we're not getting the progress reports, then we have to have an IEP meeting Mm -hmm. because child's not making progress no other way yeah yeah or even like you know and i had some teams that start oh we have collected data but the data isn't in the right areas right we're collecting data for a bip that's on behaviors that existed two years ago Mm -hmm. but there's behaviors that have popped up since Mm -hmm. then and we're not taking data so we're not seeing whether or not behaviors are getting worse or getting better or even he meeting the other day where we were trying to determine an area of need for a kid in speech and language and talking about reciprocal conversations and the speech therapist had taken some data, but they had taken data one-on-one between them and the student. And they said, when we have these conversations, the child is able to provide detail and ask questions, whatnot. So when the parent came and said, I don't see it, there was the breakdown, right? Is That parent is talking about when child is talking with peers and when child is talking in the whole group setting, right? Rather than just one-on-one. The data wasn't taken in the classroom. The data wasn't taken when they were talking with a peer. So there is the importance of, you know, data is great, but it also needs to be appropriate data, right? On the right areas that way. And then that explanation of, well, I get, we took data. Okay, no, you need to explain, like, we took data on this because this was the reason why. If there's a concern somewhere else, we can take more data. And I think that's the connection, too, when you're talking about, like, building relationships. The idea that if a parent brings something else up, maybe the next thing, rather than saying, no, we don't agree, it's, you know what, let's take some more data or let's look at it. I think that goes a long way. With right. When it gets to the point where parents are like, well, I want to have an IEP meeting. I want to make sure it that's, you know, something's in there, there's been a breakdown in relationship, right? And I think, you know, one, relationships are the key. You know, the culture of your team is the key to anything before even the technical aspects of an IEP. The second thing, and as you guys know this, IDEA is the most litigated legislation out there. And I'll be honest, it's almost impossible to ensure that an IEP 100% is being implemented. Right. I mean, yeah. looking through my sons, I could tell you there are certain things that are not happening every day. Right. Yeah. right. And when we get caught up in those things, we miss the bigger picture. Right. Right. And so that's why I think it's really important. One, parents need to understand more is not always better. Right. I think they want to. They feel so disenfranchised that they want to ask for every single thing. One on one aid for all day. They want all of these supports in and we want all of these minutes and there are unintended consequences to those things. To understand that the goal shouldn't be to get as much as they can out of the district, even if they were wronged by the district, right? I mean, really, we should be focused on what does the student you know, truly need? So I think that's always a good conversation for parents of, let's really figure out what the student needs. What I did as principal, and I, it's interesting because now I'm like, oh, I wonder what I would do with a principal like me. But <laughs> we didn't, the minutes in a student's IEP, we used as a guide. Yeah. We did yeah. not, and what I mean by that is, one, our teachers delivered services four days a week. We had aides also, 
But the fifth day, they met with every single teacher for 10 minutes per student, and they were able to go in, and the, the conversation, we had a script of what they would say, but it was, what are you teaching next week? What kind of support do you think the student needs? Mm -hmm. Is that inside the classroom? Is that pulled out? And what kind of modifications, adaptations, accommodations do you feel like you know will be necessary for this lesson? It was very focused on the lesson. And yeah. then what happened was the conversation looked like this. Well, you know what? In writing this week, we're doing Lucy Calkins, and it revolves around science and experiments and note-taking. So really, he's going to be working in a group, and he won't need that much support within the classroom. He might need a little bit with writing the notes on the lab notes, right? But in math, we're doing fractions, and he really doesn't have a good foundation. He's going to need some support there. So depending on the week, they might have gotten more minutes than right. that were in the IEP. Right. And, then, and some were less minutes, and less minutes were good. Like, we try to yeah. explain to parents, like, and we have good That means they're students. doing well. Mm -hmm. Right. So and the they're getting access to the gen ed curriculum. Right. And, and that's exactly what happened. So teacher would call up or email, hey, I just want to let you know next week your, you know, your son is going to be doing the science experiment in class during writing and you're going to be taking notes. We'll be supporting him here, but we will not be pulling him out and working on pronouns, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, things like that. And vice versa, they would say, you know what, we really feel like he's struggling with this concept, so he's going to get... We're going to support him more, and it might be in the classroom, it might be out. Yeah. But we used those minutes as a guide, but we didn't keep to them every week. And parents, because we were transparent about what yeah. we were doing, yeah. didn't care. Because they want to know, is my son safe? Are they showing growth? And then what evidence do you have of it? And I want them to be part of that classroom as much as possible. Not as an extra added not as the mascot, but genuine relationships with the teacher that the gen ed teacher feels like that student's my student as well. Yeah. Well, and that process is great. I mean, the whole reason why the IDEA outlines so many requirements and why some parents get so nitpicky on these everything little thing that's in the IEP is that a lot of times it doesn't happen if it's not in the IEP or it's not written a certain way or if it's not enforced or we don't call an IEP meeting, right? And especially because the parents are more often than not not being told anything that's happening at school. They're not getting homework at all. They're not getting classwork samples back. Maybe they'll get a test or two. They're not getting information. So like that concept, that everything that you're doing goes to the spirit of the IDEA of yes. really individualizing. And I love that. And I wish that we could clone you and put you in every school. <laughs> I mean, but you do have, to be honest, as a principal, I had a lot more influence yeah. Yeah. in that sense because yeah. it was a smaller group of people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were um, you're creating a I culture did. in your school that you're looking right. towards individualizing. And I'm sure that in doing that 10 minutes for each kid a week, probably took away a lot more of other work for them having to go back and remediate and figure out, like a lot of times we're problem solving, right? We're trying to figure out why is something not working or how do we, you know, get something else to work. That takes up a lot of time figuring that out. I think it's really proactive and yes. we've had opposing counsels and we've had 
district personnel tell us we don't have to be proactive. We have to be reactive. And I think that that loses the, as Manna said, the spirit of where are we headed? You have to be proactive to a little bit because you know that a child with autism will most likely have socialization issues. So why are we not going to try to get ahead of the social skills training, you know, in kindergarten and first grade so that by the time they get into high school, they can be part of those peer groups where they're doing a lot of group work in high school, you know? Yes, it's individualized, but a lot of times in high school, you're doing that group work and things like that. And, you know, it's hard to not get disillusioned. And we always get the parents that are upset. We don't get the parents that are like, everything seems cool. We just like your help just to have it be there. Like, you know, we just don't see that. And I get jaded too. Like 90, maybe 85% of what I deal with is very negative. Parents that are upset, schools that are upset, teachers that are upset. I just spent a day in a school. Um, They have all the leadership, like shadow, teach, you know, whatever it is, so that, you know, you get that feeling, you know, of like what's happening at the school level and amazing things happen, right? I mean, I actually sat in on an IEP meeting, which was interesting because we don't go to IEP meetings, but because I was visiting, (laughs) they're like, oh, the principal's in an IEP meeting, you know, you could wait for her to be done. I'm like, no, like I want to sit in and and I want to see it. And you know, here was a parent who definitely had a lot of concerns. She brought an advocate, and this team, the teacher and the leadership, they worked, you know, together, and this parent was so happy. That's, I know these things happen all the time. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't get to see all of that, but then you think about, how do I replicate that? Like, right. what does this principal take being proactive right. in dealing with that instead of, all right, fine, yeah, we'll do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because when, when, when parents like get things through a due process. Like I always say too, like sometimes you win the battle and not the war in the sense of, yeah, you're forcing a team to do something, but it'd be great if we were proactive about it. That we addressed it before it got to, you know, people being forced to do things. But I mean, there are definitely things when we go back to inclusion, like you have to have some understanding, right? Like, so for my staff, And I heard this once at a conference, but there are no prerequisites to inclusion, right? Right. I mean, a student shouldn't have to prove anything. Yeah. They don't have to be so many, uh, you know, you hear these urban myths. Well, they can't be in the general ed class if they're more than two grade levels below. They can't be in the general ed class if they're not potty trained, right? Yeah. Those are all urban legends. That's not true. Right. You know, so they don't have to prove anything. Right. We need to be able to support and see what we could do in the least restrictive environment. Exactly. When we start from there and then we start looking at, all right, maybe there are other environments that, you know, might be more supportive to this uh, student. You know, I think that's when you get in talking about hybrid environments and not solely in a self-contained environment. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, man, we could talk to you all day about this. I'm so glad we got you on. Yeah. We got your message. When I just told you, us about your message, we were so happy to, to hear that, you know, that you were listening and that you gained benefit. I mean, that's the goal of this podcast is really to try to advance the spirit of, you know, how we can help these kids. And we appreciate and- you taking some of the things that we say with a grain of salt because <laughs> we are, you know, on the battlefield, if you will. So we do get jaded and... Part of the reason, again, for the podcast as well was to start these conversations and because Amanda and I are always talking about it, but to also be exposed to different people. And and we were really surprised when the Facebook group, we were seeing who the listeners were. And a lot of them were 
people that were teachers, people that were program specialists. And we were just like, really? Like, that's great. Like, we want that conversation to start because there's always two sides to every story. They're his side, her side, and then the truth, right? And then these kids, these kids are all so different and things, new changes pop up, new curriculum pops up, new ideas, new research pops up all the time. Mm -hmm. So if we're not collaborating with each other and giving ideas to each other, I mean, I'm sure there's someone listening that heard your idea of the meeting 10 minutes a week and it's like, I want to do that, right? Yeah. And vice versa. I'm sure we've had people on that you, and that's the goal, right? Is that the more that we can collaborate, that's why there's continuing education, right? But that's limited and sometimes often boring. I, I think parents need to be heard. I think that's yeah. really important for schools to understand families. And one of those things like that IEP reflective roadmap, the idea really was how do parents, and I, it was more from when I was a principal and I saw parents just sitting there, just nodding their head, yeah. right. trusting staff. They don't know anything. Always, should they, tr- you know, you right. should question. But part of it is like, what do you know about your child? What is your hope and dreams for your child? Right. So if you're telling me, you know, they're in kindergarten and you want them to be independent, yet you also want them to have a one-on-one aid, right? Right. Well, those things don't always go hand in hand. So... Let's really get down to why you're asking for a one-on-one aid. So, like, we have a needs assessment that really defines, like, what are we looking for? Like, is it transition from the bus to the classroom because we're worried about safety? All right, let's put that down. Is it going from specials, you know, into the lunchroom? Is it academic, you know, in certain areas? But if it's typical things, like sometimes I hear, well, it's to keep them on task. Well, typical students are off task. Right, right. Education teachers could do that as well. So let's focus on the things they need it for. But a one-on-one aid, maybe that's not adult support. And that's what we talk about. Mm -hmm. What do they need adult support for? Can we do that within what you already have on staff? Right, right. And if not, you know, the school will get, you know, it's funny because people are like, well, the district doesn't want to pay for it. That's not true. Like, it's not the fact that the district doesn't want to pay for it. Does it make sense? And does the school already have staff? I hate the ideas, and my son has adult support. I tell the school all the time, like, I don't want her right next to him. Mm-hmm. I want you to use uh, her for other students as well, because my goal is independence. I want right. him to go to a thin college, you know, where he could be independent. So I need to work on those things now. Yeah. It's okay at my school, he tripped over his feet, cut his whole eye, bleeding, gushing. I mean, a lot of parents would be like, there wasn't someone on him. You know, I'm fine with that because that could happen to a typical kid. Yeah. Yes. Right? So I think we have to be really, like, really get down to what are you looking for and what do we do for typical students? And let's look at that and base decisions, you know, similar to that. Not saying that a student doesn't need that support, but let's define when it is and how are we going to fade out the skills that he needs support for. Right. Absolutely. So I think like those are good conversations for families oh, yeah. to really talk about. Like, yeah, I don't want someone right on top of them and, and doing things for him. All right, great. Like, so yeah. then let's really identify when he needs support and when not. And having that structure, right, that one, two, and three, and 
it kind of almost a parent will never take their emotions out of it because it's their child but it really redirects them and it gets everybody focused right. back on the needs of the child. And yeah. that's what the idea behind the Individuals Disability in Education Act, it's an individualized education program. It is supposed to be tailored to meet those uniques of those, uh, the unique needs of that child. And oftentimes this one size fits all approach, like you were saying, doesn't get questioned. And then, you know, the parent is upset and everybody has different processing speeds. So they may not feel comfortable sitting across from 10 people at the district that were all saying like, this is great for them to say. But having that kind of those follow ups when we spoke to that educational consultant and forgive me for not remembering her name, but a couple episodes back, that's what we had talked about. Like the follow ups aren't happening and just having that kind of reflective right. worksheet that you've been talking about, which we'll we'll figure out a way to share in, in the show notes, everyone. Maybe we can post it. And post up. it yeah. as well. Yeah, that yeah. would be fabulous. And, yeah. and just know, it, we, we didn't create, it was adapted from, the, you know, there are things out there oh, already. Oh, 100%, yeah. But what I used to do is give my teachers scripts, basically things to ask parents after yeah. the present levels. Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, is there anything that you notice about their reading we could add? Yeah. Because we just wanted parents to talk. And yeah, I, yeah. You know, I had a high ELL population, so it was a little bit, you know, I think they were apprehensive, but we wanted, you know, accommodations. Are there any accommodations that you could think of on top of what we have already yeah. listed? Yeah. So after every part where if parents feel like they actually had a say in there, yeah. I, there's more ownership for everybody. Oh, absolutely. And, they don't automatically challenge what is being said because a lot of it is a challenge because they feel that their voice isn't heard. And so if their voice isn't heard, then, you know, maybe what's being offered isn't appropriate. And I think I agree with you. Communication is the key and not just let me hear what you want, right? Because there's always the annual IEP. Here's a, and sometimes schools have this, like a worksheet. Parents fill out like your parent concerns prior to the IEP meeting. But that information doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't necessarily go in the present levels already. It's not discussed. And then there's no, no follow-up, right? Because a parent could say something in there. I want a one on may but they don't, they're not asking why. They're not asking how. Because as you said, you can go through that conversation and get to a different point than the parent intended, but it's actually where they want. Or it's some middle ground rather than just a yes or no. So. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, thank you so much for being on today. We're going to absolutely have to have you on again. I'm really excited to see the feedback because I know this is our first kind of person from, I don't want to say this side of the district because I want us to all, you know, try to work together, but a school district employee being able to share the perspectives. And again, like, because you're a parent as well, I think it's very helpful. And I hope that everyone listening enjoyed. I I changed a lot of the way I ran IEP meetings when I became a parent because, mm. you know, you don't know. I mean, yeah. no one knows. You could see the turmoil parents go through, but it's a very different feeling having a child with a disability. Yeah. And it made us, even just the way we set up a table for an IEP meeting. I mean, yeah, I mean, I have that and I use that to the best of my ability too because I can empathize, but I also see the bigger picture yeah. on where we want these kids to be. Yes. Where are telling a parent who has a child in early childhood yeah. or kindergarten what those options, you know, could yeah. be. Yeah. And I struggle like every parent. So. Yeah. So are you part of our Facebook group? I am, yeah. Okay, I want to let everyone know if you're, you know, at a school or you're a parent, I'm hoping this is okay. If they, you know, heard something that you said that you do and they want to pick your brain more, you know, is it okay if they go and send you a message? Yeah, absolutely. I posted a uh, vision video from uh, my son. I think yes. that's how 
we so that was something we used to show at IEP meetings. We do different things like that, but that's on there. And then if you could share like the IEP roadmap and supported decision making yeah. document yeah. are all really good, I think, documents to have, especially a lot of states are talking about supported decision making and not guardianship. So Exactly. Exactly. We could talk about that because I'm sure you have some Absolutely. opinions about that. Yeah, as well. But well, thank you so much, David. We really appreciate you being on and we will talk to you guys later. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much.